I uh, studied literature at university, which I loved, and I really enjoyed it. And one of the reasons I enjoyed studying literature is that I came across stories that I wouldn't normally read. And one such story that I read was The Picture of Dorian Gray. Who here has read that story? A couple of you. Well done. Um, yeah, very good. Basically, The Picture of Dorian Gray centers around the character Dorian Gray. And he is, as we start the story, we are introduced to someone who is physically extremely handsome, very wealthy, and considered very successful. But he begins to be focused so much on his physical appearance that when someone paints a portrait of him, he thinks that that portrait will mock him as he ages. And he begins to hate this picture because it will just show the beauty of his youth as he grows old. And so he does something that you can only see in a great novel, is he goes in and in rage, he curses the picture, and he binds his soul to it. And what this means is that he can go about his life and live a debauched, hedonistic life, and it won't affect him at all. He'll always stay young and beautiful, but this picture will bear the weight of it, and it will contort and change under all the things that he's doing. So he takes this picture and he hides it away so he doesn't have to look at it. And over the years he goes and he lives his life and he does whatever he wants. And in the end you see him confronting this picture and it is changed. It is not beautiful, though he is. This picture is warped and ugly and offensive. And I won't tell you how it ends. Go read it for yourselves. But he is offended by it. It's not what he thought it was. In a sense, we have Paul taking this picture out for us today and for the Ephesians. As he comes out and he says, let's look at the humanity, the nature of humanity. Let's have a real look at who we are. Maybe we think we're going about our lives and we're living our lives and it doesn't affect us. But there is an actual state of humanity. And Paul begins to unpack this for us in vivid language that is uncomfortable and that is challenging, but it's important that we look at it today. He starts by talking about, in verse 1, transgressions and sins. And in that day and age, if you would have understood what he was writing in the Greek, is he would have been using a metaphor for sins like an archer who pulls back his bow and lets it go. And as it goes towards its mark, the arrow just goes astray. Sin is that which does not hit its mark. It is a life that doesn't hit a life in God, that isn't going as it is supposed to, but it goes astray. And when we live this life of sin, when there is a nature of sin on humanity, it is one of separation from God, and it bears fruit. Sin bears fruit. And he talks about three different verses, three different fruits that this bears. The first we see in verse 1, he says, you are dead in your transgressions and sin. What Paul is writing about is not a physical death, but an inward death. When we choose to go astray and when we choose our own way, we are no longer in God, but we rip ourselves out of God and we choose our own way. This is the nature of humanity. And God, who is the source of everything that is good, who is the source of life, is no longer with us. 
We do not have that source of life with us anymore, and we are dead on the inside. This is what Paul is reminding the Ephesians. Remember, when you were dead, you were without life on the inside. As if that's not strong enough language, he begins to talk about language of slavery, where we are bound to things that drive us, where we lose control and we are subject to things that tell us who we are and define us outside of ourselves. And there are three very strong pictures Paul points to in the scripture. The one is uh, in verse 2, it is the ways of this world. He says that we are slaves and we are bound to in our nature to the ways of this world, to the systems of this world, to the social values that are alien to God. If we are, if a Christian is going in one direction towards God, the world is going the other direction away from God. And it all seems good and it all seems fine because everyone's going down this path but it is an alien path. It is one where we are consumed by things that are only tangible while we lose out on an eternal, internal reality. Where we be, assume that our lives are good if we focus mainly on the physical. Our jobs, our families, our life, they are good, but they are not all that there is. We can be get driven by these things. They consume our time and our energy so easily we push God aside. This is the nature of sin. is one where the values of the world are what drive us. He talks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air in verse 2. Then he's talking about Satan. It's not popular to talk about Satan today. It's as if he doesn't exist. We've kind of evolved and moved past that. But there, as much as there is a God who is good, there is a Satan who is evil who seeks to corrupt and turn humanity. The fruit of Satan in this world is destruction. And we see it as much as we believe we'll move past these themes of destruction as we educate ourselves. We still see in our, this world over and over again wars and anger and rage and humanity seeking to destroy and belittle one another. We see it in human trafficking and slavery in labels that we put on where we write someone off. This is the fruit of Satan in this world, seeking to have humanity pitted against humanity and destroying it. And the last thing he says in terms of the slavery, the things that we are slaves to is our own flesh, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Each one of us has desires. Each one of us has needs that we look for. But what goes beyond that, when we begin to gratify ourselves in such a way that we become self-consumers, where we will, we will destroy anyone in our path as long as we get what we want, what we need. This isn't just about drugs and alcohol. It's also about corporations that destroy people so they can get what they need, so they can make a better bottom line. It's our flesh. It is giving over to our natural desires so that we no longer are in charge, but we're given over to it. So, as if this isn't hard enough to be looking at a death sentence and one of slavery. In verse 3, he continues and he says, 
that we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is a death sentence. We are condemned. If we've lived our whole lives, if society by nature has lived its whole life separate from God, this is what it has sown and this is what it will have into eternity. A time where we are separate from the living God, separate from the God of creation where every good and perfect gift comes. We are separate. Condemned to a life without God. Paul writes these strong words to the Ephesians. I realize this is strong. But he's talking about the nature of humanity and Paul puts himself in there. I can imagine Paul writing this letter and thinking back to his time where he thought he was doing the right thing but he was caught up in society and he persecuted and killed Christians. I can picture the Ephesians hearing this and squirming a bit and saying, this is uncomfortable. This isn't the way people talk in Ephesus. This is a bit painful. And even I, as I read this and prepared this today, I felt a bit nervous. I thought, oh, is there, honestly, is there ways that maybe I can get around some, saying some of this stuff? It's not popular today to talk like this. But remember, we're looking at the reality of human nature, and we've got to see it. It's not popular. It's not nice. And maybe it does make us squirm a bit today, too. Maybe it offends you a bit, and maybe it even makes you angry. That's okay. That's what it's supposed to do. We see the effects of it. Henry David Thoreau, in his wonderful book, Walden, writes, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. I mean, we may not want to look at the reality of our nature, but we feel the effects of it. Whether we talk about it or not, we feel that nature within us, something that is not right. We are in a place of darkness. Humanity needs a savior. It is lost in darkness. But we have verse 4. And to the level that we are in darkness, I can tell you, it brings me great joy to tell you that but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy comes on the scene. God is like a light shining into that darkness. Paul shows us where we have been, but then he says this is who comes to the rescue. Humanity is in need of saving but guess what? There is a Savior. And it is a God of love. It shows us over and over in the next scriptures, verses 4 to 7, as much as we saw how difficult it was to hear about the nature of humanity, how wonderful it is to see and understand the nature of who God is. It stands in complete contrast, opposite of where we are. And he comes on the scene, a savior. And we see in verses 4 to 7 that he is full of love. That he is full of grace and mercy and kindness. I love this verse even in um, 
in, in verse 4 where it says he is rich in mercy. I don't know if you guys have this cartoon over here, but in America we have a cartoon character named Scrooge McDuck. No one, has anyone ever seen Scrooge McDuck? Okay, let me tell you about Scrooge McDuck. As far as I can understand, Scrooge McDuck is related to Donald Duck, but that's irrelevant for today's message. But he is incredibly wealthy. Scrooge McDuck is so wealthy that he has vaults and vaults and vaults of gold coins. And as far as the eye can see, he has gold coins, so much that he'll never be able to spend it. And one of the things that Scrooge McDuck likes to do is to put on his swimming costume, and he has a diving board in his vault, and he loves to dive into his gold coins and swim laps in his gold coins. When I think of the richness of the mercy of God, that's the picture in my mind. He is so rich in mercy, he overflows and gives it out, more than he'll ever be able to spend. And he shares it with us, that we all get to share in his mercy. It shows us who God is. We think, well, how does this God of love, who's loving and kindness and mercy and grace, how does he show it to us? How does he show us? How does that God who is all the way over there in heaven, how does he help us who is, are in darkness? It's Jesus. Jesus comes down into humanity, but he does, he's not in darkness. He is sinless, perfect in his heart. And he goes forth and he comes to a cross where he is crucified. And in that place, Jesus takes on the human condition. He takes on the darkness within himself. He takes on the death sentence. He does not deserve death, but he takes it on. He allows himself to be bound and taken away in slavery. He dies because he is condemned to death on that cross. And as he goes into that place of death, people mourn. But we know that he beats and defeats death and he is raised again. You see, this gives us access to this gift of grace. It is not a cheap gift. It is one that has been bought with blood and flesh. It is God coming in and saying, I'll take the darkness of humanity upon myself, and I'll deal with it. And we see that when he is raised again, we have this wonderful creed that we studied a little while ago. And it says, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated there. This is the same language that Paul is using of us. That we who are dead are now alive. We who are, were in the muck of sin are now raised up, and now we are seated with him. You see, our lives are now forever linked with Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, ascended him into heaven and sat him at the throne, is the same power that is working in humanity to take us out of that muck. We are no longer dead. We are alive. We are no longer stuck in slavery. We get to ascend into heaven and be part of a family. We are no longer condemned to death, but through Jesus, we sit down. We sit down as conquerors in heaven, and that is our hope. 
humanity is changed by the work of God and the fruits of grace. I really want us to sit there, and I, I'll be honest with you, as I prepare this, I thought I would be actually offended by the scriptures of Paul where he talks about sin. But the more I got into this and prepared this, the more I found that I was actually offended by grace. It was too big for me to comprehend. It was so wonderful, it almost seemed beyond me. I found in my own heart I had to come to a place of accepting it, where I actually prayed, God, I accept your grace, even though I at times feel unworthy of it. And I found in that place there was a real peace, a real connection I was able to have with what God had done. And as we go through these scriptures, we see the last point. Verses 8 and 10 are one of, verses 8 and 9 are one of these beautiful scriptures, one of these ones that we kind of memorize in church. This is for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. See, if we have a path of salvation, a path of the gospel, <coughs> If we have a path of the gospel and salvation, one that puts us in the darkness, and then one in which we are raised up by his grace, surely works is a way for us to step backwards. Why do we step back into the darkness and believe that it is no longer about God's grace, but it is about our works? Surely Paul is showing us that our works haven't gotten us to heaven. It's like a man putting a stepladder in his garden and stepping up on it and saying, look at me, I'm reaching the moon. Our, grace doesn't, our works don't get us there. And yet, over and over and over again, it creeps into the church that it is all about us just being good people. David Cameron wrote an Easter message for the church to encourage the Christians. Unfortunately, he didn't mention Jesus, but... And he also just... He went on to say that This whole message of Easter is just about us being good people. That is not what the Bible is saying. It is not just about us being good people. It is about the goodness of God and His grace. And actually, as we step into us just working our way out, thinking that somehow we can work our way to God, we kind of miss the point. It's as if God comes to us and says, or as if someone comes to you and says, I've got the keys of a brand new house for you. Here's the deed, here are the keys, it's yours. Everything about it, do what you want, free house for you. And you take it and you go, thank you. And then you go home and you look at it and you mow the back garden and you go to that person and say, is the house more mine now because I've mowed the garden? You'd say, no, it was all yours before. Those works don't make that house more yours. In a sense, we go back when we take on this idea of just works. And what it does is I want to go through three quick things that actually we can see that this idea of works actually doesn't live up and it doesn't bear good fruit. It bears bad fruit in our lives. The one thing we do is if we say that it is just about works, about being a good person, well, it's exclusive. Because only the good people then get to know God. Only those who are excellent and really, really good get to know God. It's exclusive to everyone who isn't so good. However... If everyone is in need of a Savior and God's work comes and saves everyone, the gospel is inclusive. 
Not just the good people are welcome, but anyone is welcome. Those who are having a hard time, the down and outs, as well as those who are doing great, they're all welcome. The gospel is inclusive. This idea of just good works is exclusive. And you, in fact, if we think it's just about good works, then we're competing with one another and we're not, we're not a one body. But we can come to church and say, am I doing as much as that person next to me? Have I served enough on the comp- coffee rota? Have I done enough of this or enough of that? Maybe I should do a bit more because I'm in competition because I have to earn my way to God. And we're competing with those around us. And in fact, with the gospel of grace, we are all equal. Not one of us is better than the other. In fact, we've all been made good because it's based on the goodness and grace of God. We're equal together. And if it's about our good works, then we're always having to work hard. We're on the treadmill of goodness. And we're never good enough because we work and we work and we work to be better and better and better and better, and then we fail. We don't do something good enough. And we are steeped in guilt and frustration. I failed again. But when it is the gospel of grace, we are accepted and loved and valuable. Even in the midst of our imperfections and our failures, you are loved. We see that when we actually take on this grace, that works become evidence of God's work in our life, not the means by which we get to God. I reckon there are those of you who have come to church your whole life. And maybe you're even new to church, but it has always been about being a good person. It's been about cleaning yourself up to come to church so you can look like a good person. And people can perceive you as a good person. Maybe there are those who are here today who are on the treadmill of life, believing that you just have to work to be good enough. You're working yourself to the bone, being a mother, being a father, working jobs, so that someday you can look back and see, here's the evidence of how good a person I am. You are on the treadmill of life. And the truth, God says, that is not what it is about. There is a gift for you. There's a gift where you are accepted and loved, where you are made alive, where you are invited into the family of God, where you have a hope of a future with God that isn't dependent on you working harder. This is the good news. I want to take a moment and pray before we do take communion. And if everyone could bow their heads, if you're here today and you felt that, you felt that treadmill. You felt that you've been working to make your way there. I just want to give you a second now in quietness as we close our eyes and pray. Just to simply say, God, I accept your gift of grace.